All right. So how many of you watched the debate this week, presidential debate? Yeah, a lot of people did. A lot, many people, <laughs> many people. Uh, I last count I saw was 84 million people watched the debate. Well, in the couple of days leading up to the debate, uh, when the news anchors seemed like they didn't have anything else to talk about, uh, there was a big deal made out of the fact that Hillary Clinton was going to get to answer the first question. Hillary Clinton got uh, the first question in the debate, and uh, I thought, why are they making such a big deal out of this? And then it hit me. The first question is important. Like, it sets the tone for the rest of the debate, the rest of the event, for the rest of uh, the duration of the time, uh, whatever we're talking about. You know, you, whatever it is, think about other areas of your life where the first question is important. Like, for example, when you uh, have a test, right? You cram for an exam. It's a big exam. It's one you want to do really well on. So you study hard. You get lots of sleep. And then when you sit down... You have your number two pencil with you, if you still use number two pencils. Uh, you got your number two pencil, you sit down. If that first question is easy, you're like, yes, right? I got this. This is going to be good. It sets the tone for the rest of the test. On the other hand, if you look down and you don't really know how to answer the first question on the test, um, then it sets the tone also, doesn't it? It sets the tone for the rest of the test. You feel like, I don't really know. I might be in trouble. And... and then if you look down at the test and it looks like it's the first question's written in Chinese, uh, well, then you know you're in trouble, right? And then you look down and I see I'm in my underwear. Oh, no, wait. I'm sorry. That's a dream that I had. Never mind. Uh, how about a first interview, a job interview? Uh, you prepare for the job interview. You know that that first question is going to be some form of, well, tell me about yourself or tell me where you come from or tell me how you got to where you are. So you practice telling your story in a succinct way, you know, highlighting your accomplishments because you want them to ask about what you've achieved and you're kind of minimizing your weaknesses because you know the first question sets the tone for the whole interview. How about this? If you're married or dating, think about the time the two of you first met. Do you remember that day? Uh, My wife and I, Benita and I, met at IUPUI in a speech class about 25, almost 26 years ago now. And the first question I asked her is, can I give you a ride? And so here's how it worked. We were assigned to give a speech on one another. The first day of class, we sat down. The teacher kind of randomly picked people uh, and assigned them to pair up and give a speech. So I learned a lot about her in that first class. And then uh, we were walking out. I got out to my car, and she kept walking. And it turned out she was parked on the other side of campus. Now, this is a nighttime class, and uh, it was on IUPUI's campus, and she was a long way from her car. So I said, hey, can I give you a ride? I was smooth, let me tell you. <laughs> uh, and she said no. Uh, she, she said, no, I'll, I'll just walk. It's fine. And it, it was dark. It was nighttime. I said, you are not walking to your car by yourself. I will walk with you. And so she said, fine, I'll ride. <laughs> that was when I knew I had her heart. <laughs> but first questions are important, aren't they? Would you agree? First questions are important. You agree? Yeah. So have you ever thought about the first question that Jesus asked his disciples? You can see it. Turn to John uh, chapter 1 in your Bibles if you uh, have them with you. I don't know what page that's on in the um, Bibles under the seat. I don't have my Bible up here with me. But uh, if you have yours, John chapter 1, verse 35 is where we're going to start. And uh, I want you to see the first question chronologically. We ever see Jesus asking any of the men who would become his followers. 
And so just so you understand what's happening here, uh, Andrew and John are these two men in this story. Andrew and John are disciples of a man named John the Baptist. So there's two Johns here, John who would eventually become the Apostle John, and then John the Baptist. Now John the Baptist had one clear mission. He was supposed to to, uh, clear the way for Jesus, to point people to Jesus. Uh, He knew that. He was set apart for that before he was born. Uh, So by the time we hit John 135, Jesus has been baptized by John, John the Baptist. He spent 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, and he comes out of that experience ready to start his ministry. And then one day, Andrew and John encounter Jesus, and John the Baptist is going to encourage them to follow Jesus instead of following him. And this is how it happens in John 135 is where we're going to start. It says this, The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. We know from reading later that that's John and Andrew. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. All right, so Andrew and John are following John the Baptist. John the Baptist points to Jesus, says, Look, the Lamb of God, and they turn around and start following Jesus. Now, here's where the question comes in, all right? This is, this is it, verse 38. Turning around... Jesus saw them following and asked, here it is, this is brilliant, what do you want? Isn't that a great question? I mean, what do you want? Isn't that a great first question? Now, here's the thing. It's kind of hard for us to grasp. We, we don't get the emphasis in that question, especially when we read it in translation. So here's what I want you to know. I want you to see this in this passage. Jesus isn't scolding them. Right? And sometimes if we're parents especially, we might think he's scolding them. Like, what do you want? He's not doing that. He's, he's also not being standoffish or trying to deter them from following him. He's not saying, what do you want? You know, we can see when we look at the original Greek exactly what Jesus is getting at. Because the word that's translated here as want is the Greek word zateo. And the word zeteo is sometimes translated as want, but more often it's translated as what do you seek? What are you looking for? What are you trying to find? Isn't that a better question? What are you trying to find? Or the one that I think is my favorite, sometimes translated, uh, zeteo is sometimes translated as aim. Jesus is saying, what are you aiming at? What's the aim of your life? That's a great question. And it's not just a great question for these two, but for you and me as well. It's a question I ask myself sometimes when I get up in the morning. It's one that you should repeatedly ask yourself, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. I mean, think about this. If you're a Christian, you need to ask this question. But if you're not a Christian, it might be even more important that you ask this question for everything that you do when you get up in the morning. Like, what is the aim of your life? What are you aiming at? I think if we were to go around the room today and ask you that, what's the aim of your life? You'd hear things like, well, happiness. Like, I only want to do things that make me happy, that, that bring me pleasure. Or, uh, you know, for some of you, you'd say fitness. You only get one life, you only get one body, get one time around this crazy globe. So I want to be the strongest, the fastest, the best at my sport, whatever, the fittest I can be. Uh, for some of you, it's, it's money, it's financial stability, it's financial abundance even. My parents weren't rich, uh, I didn't have much as a kid, so I'm going to dedicate my life to making sure that I never have to worry about where my next meal is coming from, my kids don't ever have to lack anything, uh, we'll never be hungry again, right? That's the aim of my life. For some of you, it's family. Family is what matters. Blood is thicker than water. Everything that I do, I do for my family. Some of you might say the aim of your life is, is love. It's to fall in love. 
Love, love, love. Love is all you need. Like, as long as I have somebody by my side, uh, somebody to cuddle with and watch Netflix with, uh, nothing else matters. Just don't make me go through life alone, right? Like, I'm going to... I'm going to go to church every week until I find Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright, and then once we miss Wright, and then once we find each other, uh, we're going to stay home and, and cuddle in bed on Sunday mornings. We never have to go to church again. You know, for some of you, you might say it's grades or, or college or a career or politics. You know, you pick. But the chances are just about everyone in this room has a different answer for that question. What's the aim of your life? But man, it's such an important question. It's such an important question. What's your motivation? And it's a question that we all answer, and we all answer it with our actions, even if we don't ever get around to answering it with our words. i got to tell you, as I think about my life and my priorities, it's a question I'm taking more seriously than ever before, specifically as a follower of Jesus. What's my aim? What's my motivation? If I had a target set up here, what's, what's, what's in the bullseye of my target? If you're a Christian, don't you want to better understand that? Don't you want to understand what God wants for you? Well, here's what we believe all of Scripture points to. If you are a Christian, the aim of your life should be bringing glory to God. Psalm 115 says it this way, Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. That our life's aim should be bringing God glory. Think about this. Why would we take for ourselves... Glory, now glory just means honor or attention or affection. Why would we take for ourselves glory, attention that was meant for God? You know, we're not holy, holy, holy like the band sang earlier. God is. You know, that scripture Cameron read earlier, we're not slow to anger and abounding in love. He is, at least I'm not. Maybe you are. But God is. All glory should go to God, not to us. And that's what this series called Profile is all about. A profile, we've said, is an outline or a brief description of something or someone. And we've been talking about the profile of a mature disciple. But some people would say maybe they don't really understand what that means. What is a mature disciple? And so, uh, you know, I'm not even sure what a disciple is, let alone whether I want to be mature or not. Well, with this series, our simple goal is, maybe this is a better way to say it or another way to say it anyway, our, our simple goal is to understand what a successful Christian life looks like. So if I ask you if you want to be a mature disciple, you may say, I don't know. But if I ask, don't you want to be a success? Most of us in this room would say yes. And then if you're a Christian, if I'd say, don't you want to be a success in God's eyes? If so, you'd say absolutely. And if so, then you need a target. You need something to aim at with every part of your life. And that's what the profile is all about. So a key verse for us in this series is John 15, 8. In John 15, 8, Jesus says, This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So this is the target we've set for ourselves. We've said, here's the profile of a mature disciple, or here's what the successful Christian life looks like. And so uh, we've gone through this every week, but Jesus said, uh, showing yourself to be my disciples. So number one, we've said uh, that the uh, successful Christian life, the mature disciple, follows Jesus. He says, this is to my Father's glory. Now we're saying this week uh, that seeking to glorify God is another hallmark of the successful Christian life. And then finally, that you bear much fruit. And we've said that bearing much fruit means we are growing in four fundamental areas. And those fundamental areas are identity, 
living like a child of God, their intimacy, which is cultivating close, loving relationships with Jesus and with other people, their integrity, which is developing the character of Jesus, and influence, which is making disciples who can make disciples. So if the aim of our life is to bring God glory, according to Jesus here in John 15, 8, Jesus says very specifically, we do this as we bear fruit. Again, as we grow, as we trust, as we are transformed by God. And we are going to talk more specifically about that fruit uh, over the next four weeks as we uncover what we're calling the four eyes: identity, intimacy, integrity, and influence. Those are four areas we can aim at, four areas that we can specifically grow in so that we bring God greater glory with our lives. Because here's the thing, God wants to do something in you before he will do something through you. But Jesus had some more words for us on giving God glory. And we can see this when he gets to the end of his life. He was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus prayed this prayer to his Father. We see it in John 17, 4. He says this, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Now let me ask you something. If you know your Bible very well, you probably know this. This prayer of Jesus is in John 17. Was this before or after he went to the cross? Right, it was before. It was before he went to the cross. Even before he gave up his life on the cross so that we could have eternal life, Jesus said to his Father, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. See, here's the thing. Going to die on the cross to pay for our sins, that was the will of God. Right? It was God's will all along that Jesus would be the sacrificial lamb. He would be the one that would take the punishment that we deserve, that he would go to the cross and die for us. That was the will of God. But the work of God was something different. What was that work? Well, if you read the rest of this prayer, if you read through John 17, it's easy to figure out. Jesus said, I have finished the work you gave me to do on the earth. And he starts talking about the disciples that he had made. He made disciples who were ready to continue taking his message to the world. That was the work, the specific work that God gave him to do. And so if you have your Bible, turn it to Matthew 28 now. And we're done with John 1, so you can turn off that. Matthew 28, 18 is where we'll start this section. We've referenced this passage numerous times. Chances are you're probably familiar with it. In the church, it's known as the Great Commission. And so just to get the timing of this right, uh, Jesus had been crucified. He died on a Friday. He was buried. Uh, He was in the ground all day on Saturday in the tomb. And then on Sunday morning, he was raised from the dead. And after that, he spent 40 days walking around on the earth before he ascended into heaven. Now, over the course of those 40 days, Jesus had died, buried, raised from the dead. And over those 40 days, he appeared to his disciples about 10 times. Now, sometimes he appeared to individuals, uh, sometimes to two at a time, sometimes to a group. And once, according to 1 Corinthians 15, he stood in front of 500 people at once. And many scholars believe, and we have every reason to believe, that that time is this time in Matthew 28, that the Great Commission is the one time he stood in front of 500 people. Here's why. Because it's the only time where he scheduled a place and a time uh, to meet with his disciples. And so the people that were curious and that were interested about what happened with Jesus, they would have met him there uh, on this mountain. He said, go to the mountain, I will show you, and I'll meet them there. And so we believe there were 500 people there at this time when Jesus issued the Great Commission. Here it is, Matthew 28, 18. Then Jesus came to them and said... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. (laughs) Now, that statement uh, could be an entire sermon right there. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, to Jesus. And so, uh, but the only thing you need to know about that for this occasion 
is if somebody with all authority tells you to do something, you should probably go do it. Right? So Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so Jesus is charging his followers, all of his followers, to make disciples who will make other disciples who will make even more disciples, just like Jesus did. And so who's here? Maybe his 11 disciples plus 489 others. Now, what is the command in this statement by Jesus? There, there's a directive for us in here. In fact, there are actually two directives in here. Sometimes we can read this and we can think the command is go. But that's not true. It's not true grammatically. Uh, and we'll look at that. But just practically, it doesn't work either. Now, here's why. Here's why I say go as the command doesn't practically work. Imagine there's a new Christian and uh, they open their Bible, they're reading their Bible, and they get to Matthew 28 and they read this passage and it says go. And they want to be obedient, so they sell their house, sell their cars, pack up all their things, move their family to Africa and become a missionary. They have been true to God's word. They've been obedient and they go. And so they get to Africa, now with much less stuff, right? They get unpacked, they get settled in, they're, they're making friends, they're starting their kingdom work that they've been called to do, and they open their Bible to Matthew 28, and it says, go. And they're like, where do I go? I already went. Right? Now what? Do I move again? No. The command is not go. The command is, and this is in your notes if you're taking notes, the command is making disciples, make disciples. The, the single activity was the driving focus of Jesus' life. Jesus poured his life into a few disciples and taught them how to do the same for others. Making disciples, or as we like to say at Genesis, helping people find their way back to God. Now, I want to be clear. Making disciples was not activity that was reserved for pastors and church staff. There was no church staff then. Uh, Jesus also didn't say, uh, make disciples of all nations, as long as you feel like you're equipped to do that. He didn't say, uh, as long as it lines up with your spiritual gifts, go make disciples. Oh, wait. He also didn't say, if you have some extra time, go make disciples. Like after you're done with work and taking care of your family and school and all your hobbies and football and all the things you want to do, then go make disciples with your, your extra time. He didn't say that. He, he said, this work needs to be the priority in your life. He says, if the aim of your life is to bring God glory, then the work of your life should be making disciples. Let me give you an example. Let's say some of you, let's say you leave church here today and you uh, go to Target or some other uh, department store and you turn the corner and you're going down the aisle and you see there a crying child, a little toddler, say three-year-old girl, and she's looking for her parents. She's lost her parents. Now, I'm going to give you all the benefit of the doubt and say every person in this room would take that child by the hand and help lead them until they find their way back to their parents, right? She says, I want my daddy. You're, gonna, you're not just going to say, oh, I saw your daddy over in uh, housewares. You know, go find him. You're not just going to say, you know what? I've seen your daddy before. He's a great dad. And then walk away. What are you going to do? You're going to lovingly take that child by the hand, and you are going to lead them around until they are reunited with their father. Now, if you would do that in target to a lost child, how much more should you want to do that 
to a lost person who's separated eternally from their heavenly Father. I mean, think about that. Jesus looked at lost people and had compassion on them. He said they were like sheep without a shepherd. Why wouldn't we be all about the business of helping people find their way back to God? Now, how do we know that investing in the few, that making disciples was a priority for Jesus? Well, we just, we read a story and we see it, right? Read through the Gospels. Here's what you'll see. After Jesus started calling uh, his disciples to become fishers of men, to fish for people, okay? In Matthew 4, 19, Jesus says, follow me and I will teach you to fish for people. After that happens, we, we can identify 17 times after that where Jesus was with a large crowd. By contrast, there are 46 times we see him investing in the few. 17 times with the crowd, 46 times with the few. Jesus prioritized disciple-making. He understood the power of multiplication and exponential growth. Now, let me tell you why multiplication, multi- multiplication growth is so important. Let's say I gave you the choice. You could have... Uh, it's October 2nd today. Uh, we'll start yesterday. You could have $1,000 a day for every day of this month. Right? October has 31 days. I give you $1,000 a day. At the end of the month, you'd have, what, $31,000. Even if you're not good at math, you can figure that out, right? Or on October the 1st, I give you a dollar, and then I'll double the amount I give you every day. So on October the 1st, I'll give you a dollar. On the 2nd, I'll give you $2. On the 3rd, I will give you right, $4. On the 4th, I will give you $8. And, and you get to keep all that money and you just accumulate it. Which one do you choose? Now, most of us look, and just on the surface, it seems like, well, $1,000 a day is going to be a good deal. But here's what happens, all right? On, on day one, if you choose addition, if you choose $1,000 a day, you get $1,000. Uh, if you choose multiplication, you get $1. Not a very good return on your investment, right? Look at day two. Day two, you get $1,000 if you choose addition, $2 if you get multiplication. So, so far, let's just do the math. You're at $2,000 with addition and $3 with multiplication. If you picked multiplication, you look like an income poop right now, right? Look, here, day, uh, let's go to day 10. Even on day 10, you're not even to $1,000 for that day. You're only to $512. Still not $1,000 a day. But by day 10, with addition, you've got $10,000. Still looks like a good deal, right? But after that, the numbers just take off. And so on day 16 alone, you get $32,768. That's more than you get for the whole month with $1,000 a day. Then on day 31, check this out. You can have your puny $1,000 with addition, right? Or with multiplication on day 31 alone, you would get $1 billion. $73,741,824. So, what happens after 31 days? Well, if you pick $1,000 a day, like we said, you get $31,000. Not bad. But when you choose multiplication, when you choose exponential growth, starting with a few, you would have $2,147,000,000 and a bunch of $1,000 that don't matter, right? A much better option. Multiplication trumps addition. Now, why is this important to the church? Because math isn't just true with money. Math is true with people too. So uh, let's say in this service today, between both services, adults and kids, we've got 300 people or so. All right. What if we could choose between adding 1,000 people a year to this church or having each one of us make just one disciple this year? 
And then each of us and our disciples make one disciple next year. All right? So if you're investing in two or three people, say, and every year one of them becomes a disciple, a follower of Jesus, and then that person and you go invest in somebody new, and so every year somebody's making a disciple, right? If, if, if we had 1,000 people a year to this church in 30 years, we could reach 30,000 people. Pretty good, right? We'd be 30,300 people. But by multiplication, but, 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 if every one of us makes one disciple a year in 30 years, we could reach the whole world. 7.4 billion people. Again, a much better option. So, was Jesus right in prioritizing a few? Well, you tell me. Uh, One author that we like to follow, Dan Spader, says it like this. These few disciples within two years after the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, went out and filled Jerusalem with Jesus' teaching. That's in Acts 5.28. Within four and a half years, they had planted multiplying churches and equipped multiplying disciples. That's from Acts 9. Within 18 years, it was said of them that they turned the world upside down. That's Acts 17.6. And in 28 years, it was said that the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. Colossians 1.6. For three and a half years, Jesus lived out the Great Commission. Because he did, he made disciples who could make disciples. So, in the Great Commission, the command, the directive for us is make disciples. But within that, the Great Commission gives three priorities that bring light to the first command. And these three priorities are going, baptizing, and teaching Going, baptizing, and teaching. Three priorities of disciple-making. So number one is going. So where this passage says, go, it says, therefore, go and make disciples. It's actually better translated as, as you are going. As you are going. For English teachers, uh, this is the present participle form of the verb. Right? Aren't you glad I remember that from high school? Uh, In other words, Jesus reminds us that our efforts at disciple-making are not limited to or bound by an event. Instead, we are to make disciples as we go. Okay, as we go to work, as we go to school, as we coach our kids' teams, as we take up residence in a, in a dorm or on a college campus, as we go do our hobbies, we can make disciples as we go. And so sometimes people will ask, hey, Steve, I'm, I love this disciple-making stuff. I am all in, but is it one more thing I need to add to everything else I'm already doing? And what I want to say is, no. Instead, you need to strip away everything else. This isn't about adding one more thing to your life or to your schedule. This is about taking advantage of what you're already doing for greater purposes. It's not a mission that we clock in and clock out of. It's not something that's limited to Sundays or for those of us who like to do it. Jesus' command is for all followers of His, all Christians. We are to walk as He walked. So, use your workplace to reach people for Christ. Use your hobbies. Use your kids' sports teams, if you can, to make disciples. But if you can't, you need to ask yourself, am I aiming at the right target? We are to take advantage of every opportunity we have to meet people where they are spiritually and help help them grow in their understanding and in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I love hearing stories of how people in our church are doing this. We shared some of these as a staff this week, and here's just a few examples of how people are making disciples as they go. Uh, one of our staff members, Jamie, Jamie's our, our newest staff member. She's an admin at the Noblesville campus. She has a husband who started a prayer group where he works. And so uh, 
you know, they meet on a regular basis and pray. Uh, I've got a friend uh, who is a business owner. He recently went through some really, really difficult times in his business, but he used that opportunity to talk to his employees about how his faith was sustaining him. Really incredible story. Uh, I know of one connection group that's considering uh, at least temporarily splitting up into men and women's groups so that they can do a better job of making disciples within their group. I love that idea. You know, you get allow you to go deeper uh, with your faith to get to talk. You know, men will talk more openly with men than they will with men and women in the room. Uh, women are probably the same way. And so uh, I love the idea of just finding a way to make disciples even within your connection group. You know, I've got a group of guys that I run with that aren't Christians, and I do these crazy races just so we can have, I can have extended windshield time with some of these guys. And, and every time I do it, there's an opportunity to share the gospel. I just look for those opportunities. Jesus' command to make disciples is an everyday commission. We call it the Great Commission, but we should call it the Everyday Commission because we do it as we are going. It's a, it's a command to bring glory, to bring fame, to bring attention to God, not to us, as you go, wherever you go. So the first priority of disciple-making is going. The second one is baptizing. This is an extremely important part of disciple-making. It means helping people publicly identify with the work and cause of Christ. You know, we want to point people to Jesus and we want to help them identify with Him. We want to see them kill off their flesh and be alive in the Spirit. So when they surrender to Christ, we baptize them so that they can better understand what has taken place in them internally and they can show that externally to the world, to their family, to their friends, and to their church. And I get really excited about baptizing people. I mean, I love to see someone born into a new life and a new church family, but lately the one thing that comes close to the excitement I feel about baptizing people is seeing the people who are the kingdom workers that are helping those people who are being baptized find Christ. Spiritual parents who are caring for these baby Jesus followers and helping them mature in Christ. It brings me so much joy. I love looking over here to the left. As I point over here because this is where they sit. I love looking over here and see the faces of the people who are being baptized. But what gives me as much joy is to see the people who have walked alongside of them in their journey are helping them grow in their faith and helping them uh, learn about Jesus. You know, this is what brought Jesus joy too. One of the few times we see him filled with joy is in Luke chapter 10. Jesus sends out the 70 of His disciples to preach, or 72 of His disciples to preach the gospel in the places that He's about to go, and they return joyful over the kingdom work they got to do. It said, even the demons fall at our feet and joyful, and they come back and they tell Jesus this, and it says Jesus is filled with joy in the Spirit. Doesn't that get you excited too? I mean, think about that. Who are the people in your life? Who do you want to see in the tub up here. Who, who's that one person today that you would love to lead to Jesus and then baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit? Going, baptizing, and the third priority is teaching to obey. Jesus says, teach others to obey everything I have commanded you. And so disciple-making is more than just introducing others to Jesus, as important as that is. And it's more than just inviting someone to church, even though that's important too. But it's a commitment to help others grow in their relationship with Jesus. I mean, babies are messy. If you know that, babies uh, eat, poop, and spit up. That's pretty much what they do, right? And spiritual babies kind of, in a, in a way, are the same way. They make a lot of messes. And they need spiritual parents who are going to be there to feed them and help them clean themselves and help them dress themselves. You've got to teach them to obey. Now, not condemn... 
Right? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but to rebuke and guide with love. Going, baptizing, and teaching, the three priorities of disciple-making. Now, uh, one more thing about the Great Commission, one more detail. I said uh, at the beginning, I alluded to it. There are actually two commands, uh, two directives in the Great Commission. And so one is to make disciples. And the second command is, is not as easy to spot. It's really hard in the NIV, but it's essential to how we live our lives and how uh, we go about making disciples. So if you look at Matthew 28, 20, you see this. Jesus says, And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, the second command we're looking for is translated there as the word surely. But in some translations, it's the word lo or behold. And I, I like the word behold as the translation there. Now, it's the Greek word idu. It's a command to take hold of. You can take hold of something. You can physically grasp it or you can take hold of it with your eyes. Jesus said, Behold, I am with you always. He said, Keep your eyes on me. As you make disciples, you've got to stay focused on me. Keep your eyes on me. Watch me. As you commit to this work, don't forget that I will be with you. That's what he's saying. Now, not to follow you around. Right? Jesus is not going to just blindly go wherever we go. If we go out to do something crazy, you can't just go, hey, you know what? Jesus is my homeboy. He's got my back, right? That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, behold me. Keep your eyes on me. Watch me, and I will lead you, and I will show you how to do this. What a great promise that if we follow Jesus, if we behold him, if we stay relationally connected to Jesus, he will show us how to make disciples. He will provide everything we need. He will help. He will teach us, and as He does, our lives will bear much fruit. And as our lives bear much fruit, that's going to bring God glory. As we surrender our lives to Him, as we come under His care and His authority, we will bring Him glory, and that should be the aim of our lives, the primary motivation of our lives. I wonder if you've ever heard the story of Matt Emmons. Uh, Matt Emmons was an Olympic rifle shooter. He was one shot away from claiming victory in the 2004 Olympics. He was competing in the 50-meter three-position rifle event, and he didn't even need a bullseye to win. He would have won the gold medal if his final shot basically had hit the target. And with his final shot, the shot he made would have normally scored an 8.1, more than enough for a gold medal. But what was described as an incredibly rare event an incredibly rare mistake in elite competition, Emmons fired at the wrong target. He was standing in lane two and fired at the target in lane three. And you can see this video. It's on YouTube. If you go search Matt Emmons, you'll watch this. You'll see his final shot. And you can see as he looks through the viewfinder, through the scope of the rifle, and he takes his shot and sees where it hit on the target. And he's excited. He puts the gun down and looks at the target, and there's no hole. And he looks back at the judge and he says, I shot. And then he looks back and he pulls the empty shell casing out of his rifle and shows it to the judge and says, I shot. And then he realized what happened, that the whole time Emmons had been aiming at the wrong target. And he wound up in eighth place. I don't know about you, but I want to make sure that I'm aiming at the right target in my life. There are so many things fighting for my time and attention, 
So many things that can easily become my primary motivation, things other than bringing glory to God. And I'm doing my best to make sure that bringing God glory is a priority in my life. Are you willing to make that the aim of your life, the the zateo of your life, to bring God glory, to bear much fruit, to give your life to the work of making disciples so that one day someone you know could come to Christ who wouldn't otherwise. Your dad, your mom, your husband, your kid, your friend, or your neighbor might surrender their life to Jesus Christ because that's the aim of your life. Don't you want to get to the end of your life like Jesus did in 17.4 and honestly in John 17.4 and be able to honestly say, God, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the example we have in Jesus. And I thank you for the work that you've given us to do. And God, sometimes it's hard. It's difficult to want to be about making disciples. But if the aim of my life is to bring you glory, I know that's the work you've called me to. God, I thank you that your will was to put your son to death on the cross so that I could have an eternal relationship with you. And if... Uh, my response to that is anything less than you called me to do than I know I haven't lived up to what you hoped for out of me. So Lord, I want to be able to get to the end of my life and say I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And for all of us in this room that are followers of yours, followers of Jesus, I pray that you would help us, help that to be our motivation to bring you glory on earth. God, for people in this room who don't know you, I pray that this week they would ask that question of themselves when they get up every morning. What's the aim of my life today? What's the primary thing I'm going to be shooting at? What am I, what am I, what's going to be my motivation for life? Lord, help them to answer that. Help them to see that through your word, through other people in their lives, through prayer, if they choose to pray. Lord, reveal yourself to people who don't know you and don't see you. Help us behold and keep our eyes on you, Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.